Listen, open your Bibles to Psalm 139. That's where we'll be uh, eventually, I promise. You'll think that I have forgotten that passage, but I haven't. You know, we, uh, we all give off a certain air <clears throat> about our loneliness level. And I think that some of our hardwiring actually contributes uh, to sort of how we perceive loneliness and how others maybe perceive loneliness in us. Uh, some of you are extroverts in this room. Uh, the extrovert says, dear, children, uh, dear teacher, I talk to everyone, so moving my seat won't help. Sincerely, the extroverted student. Some of you are introverts. You're not antisocial, you're pro-solitude, right? So if you're an extrovert or an introvert, there's a certain combination of that that, that, that gives off the impression of loneliness or not. Uh, how about optimists? Some of you are optimists in this room, and uh, not only do you see this glass as half full, but when you're alone, you think, sweet, I'm super thirsty, and I don't have to share with anyone. And so you're just an optimist. Like when you're alone or, or with people, you're optimistic. Some of you are pessimists, and uh, things are always worse than they seem at first. And no matter sort of your combination of extrovert, introvert, maybe you're a pessimistic extrovert or a realistic introvert or whatever sort of label you might put on it, the truth is we all have a little lonely. You think about Tigger and Eeyore, they give off different vibes, but they both experience loneliness. Perhaps it's why we make light of it um, and relate to it in these ways. Some talk about relationships and say, sure, there are plenty of other fish in the sea, but you're not anywhere near the sea. You're in the desert alone, right? We kind of make light of that. Like that's where our relationships feel sometimes. Loneliness. If you find yourself struggling with loneliness, you're not alone. And yet you are alone. So very alone, right? These are sort of the demotivational posters that, that came out. Um, you know, we joke about it, uh, but it's a really common thing. And we kind of make light of it, maybe to help take the sting away for a little bit. But the sting really doesn't uh, stay gone for long. We just started this series called Turbulence, and we're talking about non-eternal life-threatening bumps in the road. We can call really big heavy heavies light and momentary troubles when we gain the perspective and think through the light of eternity. There's a future glory coming. Today, the topic that we're going to zoom in on is loneliness. Now, if I were to characterize sort of the sickness of the age, I would be hard-pressed to boil it down to just a couple of words. But as I thought about this topic, I thought about these two words, disconnected and discontented. Think about how many people you talk to. Think about your own life experience. And think about how much you hear about disconnectedness coming into play with that. We live in a valley that is disconnected for a variety of reasons, but many people move here for the job, and they have been disconnected from their family. Some came here pursuing a job because they wanted to disconnect from their family. But in light of all the materialism, all the stuff we have at our disposal, we also have a very discontented society. That's why advertising works so well, right? We're all sort of discontented, not just with our stuff, but I think even in our relationships. Have you ever considered how these two words are linked? How maybe they, they play into each other because we're discontented, uh, we're disconnected, and maybe vice versa? The modern poets call this out. You think about songs, and loneliness is sung over and over. Here's a band, Vertical Horizon, that says, Save me from myself. I can't relate. 
We're mouth to mouth, and still I suffocate. There's nothing left inside for me to break. Save me from myself. Suburbia and the American dream promise us the very best of life, and yet so much of it steers towards separation. So what we're left with is the disease of isolation. Think about our living spaces. Here in California, at least, living spaces are designed and landscaped for privacy. I lived in Colorado for a short time. I walked out in the back of someone's house, and I thought, oh, my goodness, they have tornadoes in Colorado, I guess. There were no fences. It was just backyard to backyard to backyard as far as you could see, and that blew me away. I'm from San Jose. We never do that. Here, we, we design it for privacy. How about your entertainment? Entertainment is now privatized, right? Some of you have some sweet home systems. Why on earth would you go pay money to go see a movie elsewhere when you can kind of gain it in your own, in your own house? Think about so many transactions now that are automated, meaning that we interact with a machine instead of a person at the bank, at the grocery store. Remember Blockbuster, those of you who were older? Yeah, that's, called, that, that's how we used to rent our movies. Like That just seems ancient now, right? So, so we have all these interactions. I was a bank teller for nine years, and I would explain to people, especially some of our older customers, I'd say, you know you can check your balance at home. You don't need to come down to the bank, wait in line, and come ask me for, for your balance. You can just dial this number. And what I picked on pretty quickly, what I picked up on pretty quickly was this. It wasn't that they were incapable of learning this new skill called an automated teller machine, the ATM. It wasn't that they couldn't pick up a phone and dial it. They wanted interaction. They valued interaction. I valued expediency. So I thought, here, be more efficient. Dial a number. They didn't want a number. They wanted to come and talk to a real person. So pretty soon, I let it go with many of our customers. I just said, I'll, I'll happily check your balance. They get their balance, and they happily go on their way. And I realized, wow, they're just, you know, that's, here's the reality now. I actually get charged by my bank $3.50 if I talk to a teller too much in a month. Isn't that weird? Like, we get, we get dinged for, for talking to people. Use our machines is kind of the, 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 the message driven to us. You think about Santana Row. Why the popularity of Santana Row? Even after it gets built up, burned down, built up again, why? Because in one place, people can live and shop and work out and eat out, so they need to work out more, and then uh, be entertained, right? All with this quite reasonable possibility to connect with other people. We are designed. We are made for community. I won't even get into the popularity of the device sitting in your pocket or your purse right now. I mean, these are connection devices that we have. Think about the fact that solitary confinement is a form of torture and punishment. We are designed, we are hardwired for community. And yet we're all hounded by a common enemy of loneliness, of feeling alone. Uh, Psalm 25 says this, Turn to me and be gracious to me. For I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Does this sound as relevant today as when it was written thousands of years ago? Absolutely. This is a common human condition. If you're not on this city, I want to encourage you to get on this city. It's kind of like Facebook, but for our church, but a lot worse than Facebook. They're just, they don't have the resources Facebook does. I think they're short by about $7 billion or something. But it's a tool that allows us to connect throughout the week. I, I put a post early in this series, and I just said, you know, what is sort of the soundtrack for your suffering? 
post some songs here that have ministered to you. It's been phenomenal to get a lot of responses and people just saying, man, this song really got me through a dark time. Um, and people are posting there and, and um, it's just sort of a way for us to go, wow, you know, music has this really, really powerful effect on us. Most of you know there's a hymnal sitting in the middle of your Bible at any given time, and this psalm right here is lifted out of just one of the lament psalms, this genre of music that accompanies life because sadness accompanies life. And so here's all these things right from the scriptures that allow us to, to pour out our heart. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this gathering, God, the, the people that you have drawn here this morning at the 9 o'clock hour. God, you know that this week as I have wrestled and prayed and sought after the words to say and the words to leave out, God, that I long for you to be lifted high, to be made much of in our music, in our song, in our rituals, God, that we, that we obediently follow from you. I pray this morning we'd allow ourselves um, to be spoken to by you. God, I pray that we'd be fully present in this, in this moment. In Jesus' name. Amen. So why all the lonely people? Look at your title of your sermon notes for a moment. The little tagline is this, I can't help myself. And there's sort of a double ring to that. One is that loneliness is involuntary, isn't it? I mean, you can't just turn it on or off. Oh, I don't want to feel lonely. I'll just shut that one down. I don't like that feeling. It's involuntary. You can't help yourself but feel lonely. And then the reality comes in this, in this other statement that you can't help yourself out of your loneliness. I mean, by definition, that's, that's not possible. Every earthly loneliness points to a heavenly relationship. Every earthly loneliness points to a heavenly relationship. Your sense of alone is incurable any other way. Here's some of the things that just came to my mind. Becoming more self-confident, caring, outgoing, or open. I mean, that would be an advice thing, right? Hey, be more open. Just share more of yourself, and that'll help you gain friends. Fail. On some level, that may help you gain friends, but that, that will fail. How about getting into a fraternity or a sorority or some club or that group at work that seems to sort of have all this relationship attached to it? Fail. I mean, you may have gotten in there, and once you're in the club, you go, yep, it's not here either. Josh and Kayla are getting married today. How many people have gotten married for the sole purpose of removing the gnawing ache of loneliness? Married people, keep your hands down because I don't want anyone to get in trouble this morning. But just answer in your head, married people, are you, are you lonely? Do you experience loneliness? Let me tell you unmarried people, the answer in everyone's head right now who's married is a resounding yes. Doesn't mean marriage isn't a phenomenal gift of God. But marriage to cure our loneliness, fail. True story. And this sounds shocking to thinking adults. But many people try to rescue a marriage that's in trouble by having children. Does having children cure you from loneliness? Fail. There's more people around, right? There's probably more noise but it doesn't cure that, that loneliness that can still be there. How about just ignoring it or distracting yourself from it by activity or some substance? Fail. How about just going it alone and kind of dealing with it? Well, that leaves it there, so that's a fail. 
Part of the curse that happened uh, during the fall is separation. It's not just our separation from God, but our separation one to another. How does it work to rebuild our connection with other people without first rebuilding our connection with God? Fail. So every loneliness that you experience here on earth is a pointer meant to lift your eyes to a heavenly relationship. You know, last week we talked about brokenness. And one of the biggest sort of broken places in our lives is our sexual brokenness. And it's connected to such a deep core part of us. People's actions, both your own and maybe other people to you, have wreaked havoc in your life for years. There's something about activity that goes on in the sexual realm, your own or other people's actions, that just stay with you. They don't just go away. They don't just dissolve over time. People today are seeking to cure their loneliness in casual relationships where everything goes. This is absolutely nothing new. This is as old as time. I'll tell you what's relatively new. Certainly in in my lifetime, and it's really ramped up the last five years. What is new is that now same-sex relationship, gender swapping, meaning that you are fluid in, in, in who you are as a male or female or other, and confusion in this whole area is being celebrated. Let me tell you what's being jeered at, smeared and jeered. God's design of male and female, that he declared that as good, is being jeered. God's design of one man and one woman for all of time is being jeered at. And so in so many different ways, people are seeking to cure loneliness. Hear this really clearly. Heterosexual, homosexual, or the myriad of new terminology that we've all just learned in the last five minutes of history. No matter what you title it. Under the sun, meaning just just keeping God out of the picture, fail. You will still be lonely. How many people do you know, maybe you're in this boat right now, how many people do you know that have just resigned to say, that's just part of my life, that's not going away. That's just the frustration of living my life. Many people have settled. What we are doing right now as a church is more than social. It's more than just filling up your people tank to come be around other people. What we are doing right now, we actually just sang about two songs ago. We are actively remembering some things. We are actively setting our mind and our thoughts on some truths, on some realities that we desperately need to remember. In song and scripture and silence and speaking, simply by being present here, we're actively remembering. Jesus gave two things called sacraments. One is baptism. The other one is communion. At baptism, it's a little bit like your wedding day. You only get baptized once. Josh and Kayla are going to stand in front of a group of people, and they're going to make vows before God. It's really a a, a vow before God, but there are witnesses to that. Your baptism is a little bit like that. It's publicly stating, Jesus is the one that I'm now married to for the rest of my life to the exclusion of all others, and I want to do this publicly. That's baptism. Communion's a little bit like date night. 
You don't just get married, say I love you, and then you know your wife says to you five years later, why don't you love me? I do love you. I told you five years ago. Right? Men, relationship is about nurturing that and keeping it going. And when we come around the Lord's table, think about what it's called, communion. We remind ourselves. We remember him. This morning, we're going to witness a baptism near the end of the service. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table in communion. These are things for us to participate. I love, I remember as a 17-year-old high school student, going under the water and feeling that. I love tasting the bread and the wine and just saying, this is now a part of me. I've become part of of what Jesus did by dying and, and rising again. So this morning, I want to just start with some powerful truths to remember who we are. Remember from last week, part of perspective is this, that we set our minds on the things that are unseen. Why? Because the things that are unseen are eternal. The things that are seen are transient. They're temporal. The tagline from our, for our series is this, faithful in the storm. You may remember from last week that, that the bulk of that meaning is God's faithfulness to us. But Jesus, when he said, hey, Satan's demanded to sift you like, like, like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So, so there's, here's how it's laid out this morning. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with God's faithfulness, because that's essential. Our faithfulness is going to come and go. But I'm going to start with God's faithfulness and then kind of close out our time with how we should be faithful. So God is faithful in loneliness. How is God faithful in loneliness? Here it is, ready? He is with you, and that's enough. God is with you, and with that truth being set in place in your life, it's enough. In fact, here's the truth. It's way more than enough. It's more than you could ever spend. It's plenty. God is with you, and that's enough. How often does God just remind his people and assure his people with the fact that he's with them, that he's just present with them? Let's go back to the garden for a moment. The garden saw a perfect union. People to God, God to people, people with one another. And then the fall comes, the curse comes, and it rips the relationship. God to man, man to God, people with one another. And it not only brings about separation, but it brings about forgetfulness. It brings about fear. And then God starts to assure All these scriptures are in your notes, so don't worry about the fact that you can't see the scripture reference. The part I want you to see is going to show up loud and clear. To Isaac, in Genesis 26, God says this, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you. Israel then goes on to comfort his son Joseph on his deathbed, and he says this to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to to die, but God will be with you. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 41, it says, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. At the very start of Jeremiah, one of the prophets, 
He's freaked out that God's calling him to this assignment. And here's what God says back to Jeremiah in the opening chapter. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Five more times in the book of Jeremiah, you know what he says? I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. Evidently, Jeremiah needed a lot of assurance. He just keeps saying it. What's the plan, Lord? What do I do? I'm with you. And then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And what was the Lord's message according to Haggai chapter 1? I am with you, declares the Lord. Now this is all Old Testament stuff. If you don't read the Old Testament, please read the Old Testament. You're missing out on two-thirds of the Bible. You're going to see yourself in the Old Testament. I'm with you, God keeps declaring. And all through the Old Testament, there's a prophecy coming, right? That there's a prophecy that's going to be fulfilled one day. It's been told that God is sending a child who will guide and deliver and rule in purity forever. You know what his name's going to be? Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. And so we sing at Christmas time, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Think back to when you were a kid. Or if you're a parent, think about your child crying out, Mommy, I'm scared. And in the darkness, Mom just says, I'm here. I'm right here with you. Daddy, I'm confused. Daddy, I'm scared. I can't do this. I'm right here, child. I'm right here with you. Implied in that statement is this. You're safe. You have what you need in this moment. So many times, I don't tell my kids all that they need to know, partly because they wouldn't understand it anyways. They'd forget it. It would get lost in the shuffle. I just assure them of my presence. What a tiny little snippet of a picture of how God deals with us. Christian, let me assure you of this. You are never alone. You're never alone. Earthly parents fail and fall, but God never does. You're never alone. This one truth, if it, if it just sort of sinks to the bottom of your soul and holds there like an anchor, it will change your emotions. It will strengthen your will and your resolve to do the right thing. At the great commandment, which is sort of like the great assignment for all of the disciples to come, Jesus says to go and make disciples into all the earth, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Does that sound like a huge assignment? Yes. All is a lot. All the earth. All that I've commanded. You ever try to teach anyone anything? It's hard. What does he assure at the very end? And lo, some translations say, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. This changed the mighty, bold Paul. Paul in Acts chapter 18 is preaching, and he's meeting all sorts of opposition. And Jesus says to Paul one night in a vision, he says this, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. Over and over and over again, God wants to assure his children, I'm right here. 
There's nothing that's going to escape my attention. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 12, says this, In adoption, believers are taken into the number of God's children and enjoy the liberties and privileges of that relationship. They are given a name, his name. They receive the spirit of adoption. They have access to the throne of grace with boldness. And they are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, the intimate name of God. Like a father, God has compassion on, protects, and provides for, and chastens them. Yet they will never be cast off, but are sealed to the day of redemption and will inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. We have many children in this church. They've entered our family both by adoption, uh, by biological normal means, and by sort of spiritual adoption. Some of you just take people in, and they're family. Here's the truth. We'll all fail our kids. As much as we long to always do the right thing, we will fail. God will never, ever fail us. We'll never be cast out of his family. We'll never be left alone. I want you to listen to, I'm going to read just the first 18 verses of this psalm, and I don't want you to get lost in either having heard this a bunch, your brain kind of checks out, or lost in the fact that it's a lengthier portion of Scripture. If you need to, just close your eyes. If it helps to follow along, follow along. But listen to the massive comfort that Psalm 139 brings, and listen to the massive terror it brings, depending on whose side you're on with God. If you're an enemy with God, or if you're a family member of God, Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even if a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. This, pas this passage, passage speaks to the very essence of God. 
In theological terms, it's his transcendence and his imminence. What do those words mean? His transcendence means this. His transcendence is his omnipresence. The fact that he is everywhere all of the time. He never misses anything. His imminence speaks to this, that he's not just far off and awe-inspiring, but he's intimate. He's close. It speaks to his faithful availability to us in any circumstance and situation or location on the earth that we could possibly find ourselves. We sing a song by a delirious called Obsession Sometimes. Listen to this line that speaks to the essence of God. Sometimes you're further than the moon. Sometimes you're closer than my skin. The truth of it, he's always both of those. That's the transcendence and imminence of God. It's his essence. He doesn't try to be that. That's who he is. That's who we sing to. God is faithful in loneliness. What about you? How can your faith not fail this test? Here's what it looks like for you to be faithful in loneliness. Number one is this, C.1, which is that God is with you and that's enough. So here's what I want you to write down if you're taking notes. Run to the Father. God's remedy for loneliness is himself, always. That's the first answer. To the exclusion of all else, run to him. Does this sound too easy? Does it sound trite? Evidently, it wasn't so for Jesus. Listen to John 16, 32. He writes, he says this, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, he's talking to his closest allies. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. That's the present circumstance that is about to unfold. Jesus just prophesied that the sheep would scatter, which we know in hindsight that happened. And listen to his very next words. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. You're all going to desert me, yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. Evidently, Jesus didn't think that was just a trite statement. He looked at his circumstances, reminded his own heart to say, I'm never alone. The Father is with me. So abide and dwell and remain in the vine. Nothing else matters if that's not in place. By the way, this is not a one-time thing, isn't it? I mean, our hearts wander, our hearts forget. And so we keep running back to the Father. Here's number two, remain with the family. We live in a cultural climate that says, go it alone. Don't get held up by your family. Go it alone if you need to. Refuse that and stay committed to each other. God's means of relationship is the church. He doesn't rescue us from loneliness only to leave us alone. He rescues us out of our poverty and he sets us in a family. His family will last forever. When you think about life, life is um, about learning to love. And I can't think of a, a place where it's, it's better to nurture this and put it to the test than in a family. Do you know that God commands us to be doing what we're doing right now? He commands us to not give up meeting together. You know why? Because of the fall separation, we will, we will have a tendency towards drifting away from one another. Again, biological families understand this. You have to work at just getting together sometimes. I get it. That's the same, true, same is true in our spiritual 
family. How do community groups fit into this? Just a quick word on this. You know, community groups are part of a bigger picture. They're not a cure for loneliness. Any chance I get that we roll out community groups, I say, if you are looking to cure your loneliness by coming to this program, you will be miserably disappointed. You will heap on your community group leader and community group friends things that they can't possibly bear. So run to the Father. After you run to the Father, you know what the Father tells you to do by the Holy Spirit? Connect with others. Run to the Father, then join a community group. Don't come to the community group to solve your loneliness crisis. It doesn't cure your loneliness any more than a gym cures overeating, right? Now, if you go to a gym, you may, uh, in, a, in a community group, it may be a great place to meet people desiring to grow. It may, in fact, be a huge part of your own accountability and your ongoing motivation to change. And it may, you, you may learn huge amounts uh, and grow greatly as you have people to kind of model and, and walk with you through this. But your problem of isolation is not solved with community groups. We have a theme that we're going to roll out in a couple of weeks, but this fall's theme for community groups is this. We're just calling it family time. And this idea of developing eternal relationships, they don't just happen. You develop something by incrementally doing the right thing over time. And as that happens, you begin to nurture and develop relationships. Here's the third thing I want you to do is to stand with the lonely. You see, we're not designed just to fellowship with God. We're not designed just to fellowship with believers in this church. We are designed and created to connect with people outside this church. We say this all the time. Neighborhood Bible Church, if you join this church, you will be frustrated sometimes of going, why aren't there more programs for me? That's a legitimate question. Here's why. Fundamentally, a huge part of why Neighborhood Bible Church exists is for people who don't yet attend Neighborhood Bible Church. God is going to bless relationally in this place in such a way that it is meant to be a blessing to the neighborhood. It is meant to be outward focused. We use this word share around here a lot. We are not meant to gather, store up, rent out more storage units and keep storing all the relational goodness that we have with God and one another. We are meant to give this away. That means sometimes I will not connect with you, my friends, very often on a Sunday because I'm not looking to connect with you. We have all kinds of connection. I am outward focused and looking to connect with someone who looks like they don't have any connection. This church exists for those who don't yet attend here. Not the sole reason, but a big part of it. God heals and guards us from loneliness as we walk in obedience in this area. If you live to love people, you will not be lonely. Born out of your relationship with God, renewed out of the relationship with, with running to the Father constantly, if you live to love other people, you won't experience loneliness. There's a message that um, I gave several years ago called Stand Beside the Lonely, and let me invite the band to come on up right now. You'll notice that the word one is written and kind of highlighted. That was, that was done intentionally to say this. Don't just care about a class of people. I care for the sick. I care for the prisoned. I care for the orphan, the outcast, the bullied. Instead, go and care for one person who may wear some of those labels. Don't just care about a cause. Care for people. 
There's a huge difference. How easy is it to like a cause, right? Click. Did my part today. I liked 27 causes. Man, it's so much different to enter in and start caring for someone. You know what you'll find very soon? I get this all the time, day one. Dave, I'm super excited. God's using me to reach out to this person and care for them and they're hurt. And they're really messy and it just feels so good to like just get in there and really love them. Day six, Dave, I'm being driven crazy. This guy is sapping me dry of every ounce of emotional stability that I have. Help me. Here's often the problem. That person has gone and tried to play junior God, Messiah complex. I'm going to rescue this person out of their loneliness. And man, people will just, people's needs will just swallow you up, won't they? C point number two, remain in the family. Standing beside the lonely is a group effort. Many have reached out in adoption and orphan care. We've used this image of an umbrella. Man, as they're reaching out with an umbrella and they're trying to shield a child, look at how exposed they are right now to the elements. Utterly exposed. What a powerful picture to have the church family come around and just get near to that couple and share their umbrella. Right? That's the picture of of this team sport God's created. We're going to sing this song, Show Me Your Glory, right now. And I want to give you the context, because if you miss the context, you could take this in so many weird theological directions. The context of this song, where, where this is being taken out of, is Moses at the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting was the physical sign of God's presence. And the key part of this story is this. Moses saying this, God, if you don't go with us, we are not moving. And God, if you get up and go somewhere, we're not staying. (laughs) We have to be with you. We recognize the only reason we exist as a people, the only reason we have success, the only reason we're alive today is one thing and one thing only. It's your presence. And now that I've tasted your presence, I won't settle for anything else. I've sold the farm to get the presence of God. And if the presence moves, I'm moving with it. And if the presence stays, no matter what else entices me, I'm staying put right here. Man, what a powerful picture. I've had two conversations this very week of godly Christian people who have said that same sentiment. They had no idea what I was preaching on. They just said, if God's moving us, we're going to go. If God's not in where we think we might supposed to be going, we're not moving. We only want to be where God is.